Alrighty, everyone, welcome back. This is Tavis Killian, joined by Kevin Olson for the first time in, oh gosh, what has it been, two, three months? <laughs> I think three months, yeah. Yeah, we've been busy, but fortunately, at the end of this year, we have both put the finishing touches on a couple of projects we've been working on. So great experience for our portfolios. We're still growing as young engineers. Things are going well, but it's high time we get back into this news thing we've been working on. What do you say, Kevin? Yeah, let's kick it off. <laughs> All right. Well, we start it the way we always do right here, Colorado, DJ Niobrara Basins. And the extraction industry is a booming one in Colorado, a statement that is truer more now than ever. In part due to increased royalty rates, however mostly credited to increased production and heightened oil prices, the state has raked in $393 million in revenue this past year from the industry. Compared to last year, that is a jump of 64%, according to the U.S. Department of Interior. Although comparison to last year may not necessarily be the best metric as the economy was reeling from a worldwide pandemic, the state will only capture 49% of the revenue, and the rest will go to the federal government, which adds up to $142 million for Colorado. The $142 million in revenue sent to Colorado was the fourth largest disbursement among the states after New Mexico, Wyoming, and North Dakota. And wow, I'm really surprised Texas didn't make that list. But again, that's probably most likely related to those royalty rates. They went from what, 12 and a half to 18, I think it was? 18%, yeah. But I mean, that's still impressive numbers for, I know that Colorado is, is still ranked as, as one of the top in terms of uh, oil producing states here in the United States. But kind of like you said, it is surprising to see how much revenue, I mean, a jump of 64% from last year, again, you got to take into account that demand was low, you know, coming out of COVID and, and prices weren't looking too hot. But hey, $142 million for the state, I'm excited to see where that could, takes us. But in another story, we all know that California is well known for its very strict regulations when it comes to oil and gas activities. But there's another state that's been quietly toughening up their state regulations as well, and that is here in our backyard, Colorado. The recently formed Civitas Resources aims to clean up the industry by not only complying with Colorado's high standards, but then going the extra mile. Some of their well sites have no surface equipment, and so that means no flaring, leaking, trucking, or really even eyesores to worry about. According to a third-party rating agency, it makes for a cleaner production than 75% of other operators. Savitas is now investing in a future where companies will pay a premium for cleaner rated oil and gas. Whether it will pay off is yet to be determined. And this one's interesting, Tavis, because I'm not really sure how you can have zero surface equipment i'm not really sure how that can is going to work out for those guys yeah it's got to be a net thing or something like that but either way sure it's going to be an expensive product but i like seeing things like this because the more oil we can produce here in the united states with these technologies means the less oil that's produced with half the care and effort in countries south of the border or in other parts of the world where the regulations may not be there. So hopefully American industry can remain strong and love it. Well, and, and what I think is interesting, kind of, I kind of read this story, Tavis, is similar to like a, a an organic versus, you know, a standard apple. There's certainly going to be people out there that will pay the, the premium for the organic apple, or in this case, let's call it the organic um, hydrocarbons that they're <laughs> producing. So I think it's certainly going to pay off. And I think it's certainly something that if other companies can invest in and pursue that this is going to be something we're going to be seeing a lot more of down the road. And we can get away from the futuristic topic of free-range hydrocarbons as we rotate back to something a little more familiar. 
Many Colorado cities rank among the worst in the country for air quality. By approving a new project, regulators are hoping to make a difference. A proposal by PDC Energy to drill 464 oil and gas wells on 33,427 acres south of Greeley over the next eight years was approved by the COGCC. Although the plan was approved, it faced some difficulty in the process as it broke state regulations such as drilling a well within 2,000 feet of sensitive areas, in this case, 149 homes. Ultimately, the project was given the green light after a case was made for how responsible PDC has been in the past with other projects, and data that shows the project will help to reduce air pollution over the near decade of its life, and hey, good on them for still finding a way to justify this project, because I know it can be difficult to have those conversations with regulators. And, and I know that this is certainly a, a process that, you know, kind of Colorado, you know, as we talked about in the previous story, we're getting more and more strict on regulations, but that's something that um, the operators here locally are just going to have to kind of start to navigate, you know, better and better as, as, you know, restrictions tighten up because, you know, we still need that energy and we still need to produce domestically. So good job on, on PDC for being able to kind of navigate this first round here and, you know, they set themselves up for the next eight years. But enough of talking about our backyard here in Colorado. We're going to ship it over to the Scoop Stack, where one of the largest crude oil spills in the United States in nearly a decade happened just between the border of Nebraska and Kansas. The Keystone Pipeline, which transports crude oil from Alberta, Canada, to refineries in the Gulf and Midwest, recently leaked nearly 14,000 barrels of oil. The leak took place near a town of about a thousand people who have not had any issues since the leak, including groundwater issues. The cause of the leak is still unknown, and TC Energy, who operates the pipeline, is busy determining what really went wrong. This marks the pipeline's third spill of several thousand barrels of crude since it first opened back in 2010. And you know, Tavis, this is truly unfortunate news. You know, not just for um, you know, TC Energy in, in this town of about a thousand people, but kind of for the industry as a whole. You know, we're really trying our best to to cleanly produce energy, responsibly produce energy. And, you know, even though pipeline transit is certainly um, the in terms of environmentally and even for individuals the safest, there still can be things that go wrong. There can still have leaks. So um, unfortunate to see that, you know, 14,000 barrels of oil did leak, but I am glad that there's, you know, no issues, including any kind of groundwater issues. Yeah, absolutely. I believe I was in the car with Marty when this uh, story first broke. Hell, I shout out to Marty if you're listening, but we dug a little deeper because at first this headline's very shocking, right? One of the worst in nearly a decade. If you look at TC Energy, again, this is information from last month, so it might be a little murky, but I think they transport some 600,000 barrels of crude through that pipeline every day. So the amount that came out was, sim I think, like 48 minutes worth of response time. So the fact that they were able to detect that leak and within 48 minutes shut it down is amazing because that prevents this 14,000 barrel spill from becoming, you know, 150,000 barrel spill as it goes for several hours that day. So good on them for catching it. It's difficult to manage this amount of commodities being transported on a daily basis. And like you said, unfortunate, but I think they made the most of a pretty terrible situation. But enough on that. Let's go to, well, a bit more of a wacky story. One of the more unusual headlines of the month, Joshua Decker has been sentenced to 60 months in prison for conspiracy to steal trade secrets. Joshua worked as a controller for the valve division of an oil and gas company headquartered in Oklahoma City. 
Decker registered with the Oklahoma Secretary of State a new company called Legacy Valve Systems and proceeded to recruit co-workers from his original company to join him at his new company. Joshua is supposed to have downloaded technical drawings, material specifications, and manufacturing instructions from his original company's valves and sent them to himself. Decker was also ordered to pay a total of $1,116,885.49 in restitution. And I gotta say, Kevin, I'm all for creating new competition within the markets, but <laughs> you gotta do it with this at least really a sense of decency. New competition. He's just stealing competition at yeah. that point. Copy, paste. So, yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, years of school teach you, can't do that. <laughs> but let's wrap it up by talking about Iron Horse Midstream, who is planning to expand its 200 million cubic feet per day natural gas cryogenic processing plant in Grand County, Oklahoma. Upon completion in late 2023, the plant will have 425 million cubic feet of processing capacity with the capability for further expansion as driven by customer needs. Most of the company's other assets include 300 miles of high and low pressure natural gas gathering pipelines, including compressor station. Tim Roberts, which is Iron Horse's chief executive officer, is quoted as saying, quote, we understand that our success is driven by the success of the companies we serve. This expansion is a testament to our continued focus on providing reliable, customized, and flexible midstream solutions to our producer consumers. So I think this is exciting news that um, this giant cryogenic processing plant is going to be opened um, just kind of down the road here in Oklahoma. Um, and it's great to see that, you know, the reason that they're expanding is because their consumers are asking for, you know, hey, we need, you know, additional processing capacity. And um, I think that's great um, what Tim Roberts recognized. And I'm excited to see where this story develops. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Great story to hear, but we'll transition into California where we got a bit of a bleaker headline. You may not think of L.A. as a hub of oil and gas operations. However, the city is home to 26 oil and gas fields and more than 5,000 oil and gas wells. If I'm not mistaken, it's largest in terms of land area in California. A recent decision by the Los Angeles City Council to ban new oil and gas drilling in the city was just approved in a 12-to-1 vote. Existing wells will be phased out over the next two decades. The council decided to vote on the issue after years of complaints by residents about how pollution from nearby drilling has caused them health issues. California is often the guinea pig for new regulations, and if this works well, other states might follow suit. Should the effects of banning all drilling operations in the city have enough positive outcomes, it could mark the beginning of a citywide drilling ban across the country, and I believe this was announced in tandem with a very recent effort to stop drilling within 3,200 feet of, again, vaguely defined sensitive locations. So this is California, specifically Southern California, Los Angeles, taking a stand against the industry. So I am excited to see what those outcomes are, positive and negative. And, and unfortunately, Tavis, I think it's going to be mostly negative. I mean, this is a huge area, a huge oil and gas hub that they're just going to ban, outright ban drilling. And, you know, as we know, there's you know, no way to um, increase production or even maintain production if you're not um, continuing to drill, continuing to um, get back to those assets. So um, kind of an unfortunate vote, but but I am excited to see where this goes and, and how other states and, and cities are going to try and implement, um, you know, similar policy down the road um, as we do start to move away from hydrocarbons and more to kind of cleaner energy sources. 
But up next, in preparation for a cleaner future, California regulators announced initiatives to speed up the state's transition away from fossil fuels. One proposal aims to put the state in a position to reach its goal of carbon neutrality by 2045 by ending the construction of new gas-burning power plants. While the advantages are, of course, fewer emissions and a cleaner environment, the risks include higher chances of power blackouts for the second largest city in the country. Lane Randolph, chair of the California Air Resources Board, is hopeful the proposal becomes a reality. However, he's worried about how fast the plan calls for the build-out of renewable energy resources at a rate that they've never seen before in the state. The proposal is up for a vote in December by the California Air Resource Board. And Tavis, you know, I think the worries here um, might kind of have to trump, you know, the, the the potential for, you know, this green transition because, how many times do we see blackouts in California this past summer? Six, eight times. Um, and by phasing these out um, too quickly uh, without being able to kind of backfill with, you know, these, you know, more clean energy sources, uh, those issues are just going to compound on each other. I agree. And if you take that concern further down the road, when you do experience all those blackouts, what are the solutions? Well, bringing on hopefully natural gas plants, but sometimes it's oil-fired power. Sometimes it's coal-fired power. So I don't think it's wrong to, instead of decommissioning all of this old conventional existing hydrocarbon energy, maybe just put a couple of gas plants on the side should you need them. Because the EIA has recognized it. The IEA has recognized it. Natural gas is far cleaner than a lot of the hydrocarbon energy we've been using for generations. And it has its place up through at least 2050 in reducing emissions. So Again, California is going to be the forefront for a lot of these things, so we get great case studies on what the actual ramifications are. But other than that, Shell and Exxon face delays in exiting the California oil field. The much-anticipated departure of Shell and Exxon from their longtime acreage in California is now expected to be delayed to the first quarter of next year due to U.S. regulatory approvals. Tightening restrictions for producers are driving them out of the state as it becomes too risky to continue to operate. Shell and Exxon being the largest of the most recent departures. ICAV, a German asset manager, has already agreed to pay $4 billion U.S. dollars for the Shell-Exxon joint venture company, Era Energy, but the deal is now taking longer than expected as the sale is pending review by the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States. And hey, makes sense. $4 billion in assets being transferred... Well, to a foreign entity, gotta gotta review it. Absolutely, and kind of gotta, like you said, dot your t's and cross your eyes. But um, this is kind of just um, uh, the reality of you know what we've been talking about over the past, gosh, Tavis, I don't know, two three years now. That mm-hmm. you know, as California makes things more and more difficult for operators to stay in business, um, they're just gonna walk away. And, and it looks like Shell and Exxon are, are you know going down that path, era energy is going down that path. Well, I mean, more getting bought out than anything, but I think this is something we're going to continue to see as, you know, kind of times change more and more down in California. But I believe that's everything we have for California. Kevin, where are we headed next? We're going to take it over to the Marcellus, where in the face of seemingly imminent federal sanctions due to lack of inadequate emission regulations, Pennsylvania regulators have approved new rules limiting emissions at conventional oil and gas sites. The new regulations are specifically aimed at preventing leaks of volatile organic compounds, specifically methane. An emergency version of the regulations was originally approved to avoid federal sanctions, however, was later that day certified by the governor. 
If the final version isn't in place by December 16th, which was just this past week, the state will lose much needed $500 million in federal highway money. The approved regulation is expected to reduce volatile organic compound emissions by as much as 9,204 tons per year and could lower emissions of methane by as much as 175,788 tons per year. And those are some pretty impressive numbers there, Tavis. Oh, absolutely. And this is just going to be the future of things. More and more states are adopting these regulations that try to close the system as much as possible to avoid these little burps here and those vents there. So I think it's only a matter of time, especially in very well-regulated areas, before, say, uh, flaring is, I mean, come on, we used to be able to flare. Now you have to get permits in some places. It's just the way we're trending in the name of climate change. So I'm glad that people are finding, you know, money for projects like this, but uh, it certainly makes energy just that much more expensive in the end. Oh, but if some of you have seen the documentary Gasland, you may be interested in this next article. Following the viral video where residents of what has come to be known as Gasland were seen lighting their tap water on fire with a lighter, a new water pipeline will be built. Pennsylvania American Water is helping out the Gasland area, Dimmick, located just 15 miles from the New York state line. As part of a new public groundwater system, two wells will be drilled from which water will be transported to a new treatment plant that will remove any contaminants from the water before piping it to about 20 homes. Coterra Energy who is facing a total of 15 criminal counts, most of them felonies, for causing the gas in water situation, maintains that the gas is naturally occurring. And of course, this is a, a difficult thing to talk about in court because, yes, it could be naturally occurring. You can't prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that they didn't do it on purpose. But of course, uh, fracking does induce communications between reservoirs and non-reservoirs or drinking reservoirs. So, there is something to be said, but if the case has gone on for this much time, I mean, oh, how many years has it been? 14 years? <laughs> 14 years, man. I just, I, I'm glad that, you know, the Gasland area, all those, you know, residents in Dimmick are finally going to get clean drinking water. But, um, you know, kind of like you said, Tavis, it's it's a hard, you know, situation to navigate. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, it sounds like these people are, are going to get what has been well-deserved after 14 years. But enough uh, talking about our friends up in Pennsylvania. We're going to ship it on down to the Texas area where we're going to talk about one of our favorite basins, the Eagle Fur, yeah. where Marathon Oil has announced an agreement to purchase Insign Natural Resources Eagle Fur assets. These 130,000 net acres are in the gassier, condensate-rich window of the Eagle Fur. The acreage produces a net 22,000 barrels of oil of oil and 67,000 barrels of oil equivalent per day. Marathon estimates there are about 600 proven and undeveloped wells in the new acreage, which extends the company's inventory by six years at current drilling rates. Marathon also expressed there will be a value in recompleting some of the 700 existing wells on the acreage, most of which were completed well before 2015. So, this is just great news. You know, Tavis and I have always been huge proponents of the Eagle for kind of the, the undervalued asset, you know, down where the Permian kind of dominates as king. But this is great news that this area is, is really getting the, the value and the um, attention it, for what we believe totally deserves. And I just hope their estimate for the proven reserves is accurate. But Next article, the Eagleford has seen a relatively large wave of M&A activity through 2022. 
With the combination of Penn, Virginia, and Lone Star resources to form Ranger Oil, Devon's acquisition of Validus Energy, Silverbow's offer to acquire Sundance Energy's Eagleford assets for $354 million, and now Marathon Oil's purchase of Ensign Natural Resources that we just talked about. I mean, there's just lots of cash being handed around, lots of deals going down. People are gearing up in the Eagleford because, well, they see opportunity. They see a place that is going to be... once again, as prolific as it used to be. Much of this is likely driven by natural gas commodity prices, which have been the highest in a decade, though they've come down recently. The Permian, despite tremendous volumes of associated gas, has considerable takeaway issues, whereas the Eagleford has a more built-out gathering network relative to its gas production. So like Kevin and I say, we love this field, we love the Eagleford, it's just a matter of time before it finally hits its stride once again. But... That's only one part of Texas that we have the opportunity to talk about. Kevin, what's going on in the Permian? Well, the big brother Permian oil production is now eclipsing its 2019 records. Gas production in the basin for several months actually has been higher than pre-COVID levels. The glut of gas has reversed some of the positive trend in the flaring reduction. It is expected that the takeaway capacity that Tavis was just talking about, in the Permian will be greatly increased when the Matterhorn Express pipeline is completed in the third quarter of 2024. This 580-mile, 42-inch pipeline will be able to transport 2.5 billion cubic feet of gas per day out of the Permian, which is going to significantly contribute to alleviating the takeaway capacity across the basin. And, um, you know, it's, it's great to see that you know, we're basically eclipsing 2019 records of oil production, but with all that additional oil on the market. Well, there's all that associated gas also on the market. Um, And now that can't really flare down in Texas, which I think is a great thing, you know, you're just kind of burning out dollar bills out there. Um, It's kind of an issue of, okay, well, now where is all this gas going? So hopefully this pipeline can get completed as quickly as possible um, so that the Permian can kind of continue to set those production records. Next, in a partly stock, partly cash deal, Diamondback has agreed to purchase Lario Oil & Gas Company's Midland Basin assets. This deal provides Diamondback with 150 gross well locations of proven and undeveloped reserves and 50,000 barrels of oil equivalent per day of existing production. Lario's Permian acreage totals about 83,000 acres, 15,000 of which are in the core part of the northern Midland Basin. Diamondback is a Permian Basin pure player that focuses largely on the Midland Basin, so this probably fits very nicely into their portfolio and doesn't change their equation, their their cookie-cutter deployment strategy too much, I'd imagine. So I don't know if you guys know this, but just a few of the leading multinational companies that operate in the Permian, those being you know Exxon, Oxy, Apache, Chevron, ConocoPhillips, and BP, these corporations will continue about one-sixth of the production growth in the basin through 2025. Several of these companies have bought into more heavily in uh, in recent years, those being Exxon and ConocoPhillips, while others have really, um, you know, kind of dispersed throughout. Several of these companies have bought more heavily into the basin in recent years, those being Exxon and ConocoPhillips, while the others have had acreage position in the Permian Basin long before the shale revolution began in the late 2000s and early 2010s, those being Chevron and Oxy. And it's strange to, well, I shouldn't say strange. It's interesting to see all of these multinational companies getting involved because, well, the a lot of oil history was born in this country, and it's a great area to develop a lot of those resources. But I 
do wonder, this is just pure speculation, how long it will be until it doesn't just become multinational, but, say, foreign, like that deal we just talked about with Era being sold to that company in Germany. I think there's lots of growth to be had, but it seems that a lot of Americans aren't interested. But again, that's just pure speculation. That rounds out everything we've got for Texas, Eagle, and Permian alike. And I think it's time we move over to Wyoming, Powder River Basin. First up, we've got Wild Earth Guardians. They've sent a letter to the U.S. Department of the Interior petitioning for the comment period on a new round of federal leasing to be extended to 45 days. Concerns about the perceived climate crisis were cited in the letter. Despite the fact that the Biden administration has overseen the least leasing of acreage since any precedent since World War II, many protesters have taken a particular exception to recent leasing rounds. The latest rounds, announced in October, include 209 parcels of land totaling 251,000 acres, and that seems to be anywhere from 30 to 50 percent larger than some previous uh, leasing that I've seen, but it's... This is nothing new. Wild Earth Guardians, other groups, they always write in and try to fight leasing right before anything starts. So this is just business as usual and continuing to balance the interest of companies that are looking to produce and people who would rather not see that. And speaking of companies that want to produce, in October, pruning slowed um, in many of the major powerhouse basins. We're talking Eagleford, Permian, and Marcellus. But the Powder River Basin saw an increase of more than 87 permits month over month, and the DJ at Niobrara saw a 70 permit increase uh, month over month. Devon Energy and EOG Resources were the major drivers in the permitting increase in the Powder River Basin. So Wyoming, Colorado, and California were among the only states that actually saw an increase in permitting in October. And, and while someone like Wild Earth Guardians is going to be upset with you know the <laughs> increased number of permits, you have to take into consideration that there was no permitting um, in this area for, for about a year and a half. So um, I'm not really surprised by this increase, and, and it's great to see that there's still individuals willing to work in these areas and, and wanting to pursue a future here. Absolutely. There's still individuals willing to work in these areas, and as a matter of fact, Wyoming is the second top producing energy state on federal land. The U.S. Department of Interior announces that $20 billion has been generated from the federal leasing royalties during 2022. Wyoming received $1.6 billion, an increase of $600 million from 2021. New Mexico, with a large amount of federal land in the Permian Basin, has brought in $6 billion during 2022. Wind energy leasing brought in $4.6 billion this year, compared to the $5.1 million last year, an increase of three orders of magnitude. With several wind energy projects underway in Wyoming, it's likely that wind energy revenues will constitute a larger share of federal royalty revenues, and I gotta say, I'm, I'm absolutely flabbergasted of that increase, 5.1 million to 4.6 billion? Good golly, I can see why that is significant money, but again, how much of that is matched by the government or, you know, subsidized? I hate to say it, the dirty S word, but I, I think a lot of that does come into play here when we talk about funding. Oh, and it certainly does, but, you know, there's nothing necessarily inherently bad about that. I mean, this is funding that is going to support jobs. It's supporting, um, you know, taxpayer money. I mean, this this is all good news, you know, and, and especially here at Rare Petro, we're always excited to see, you know, energy investment. Does that necessarily always have to be oil and gas? No, that's just, you know, our main passion. But, you know, I think this is nothing but good news for our, our neighbors to the north up in Wyoming. Um, and we'll keep you updated. <laughs> and hopefully these counts just start going up and up. 
But to wrap up our episode today, we're going to head over to the Williston Basin, where our rig gains led a small increase in the latest U.S. drilling tally. The first rig count in November revealed a nearly flat U.S. rig count growth with static activity offshore and slight decreases of rig activity in the stack play in the central basin platform, marked only by an increase in the Williston, actually up 5% in the scoop plays. The Delaware and Midland Basins gained two rigs and lost one respectively, where the Eagleford, DJ Marcellus, and several other plays remained excitedly flat in that period. And this is all information that Tavis actually covers in the Monday Madness podcast. So make sure you're giving that a listen, you know, every week here. Hey, thanks, Kevin. I appreciate the shout out. We have a lot of fun on Monday Madness. So, hey, maybe we'll see you there next week. Next, Northern Oil & Gas, who is a rapidly growing oil and gas company focused primarily on non-operated working interests, mostly in the Williston Basin and secondarily in the Permian, Eagleford, and other basins, has been a healthy performer in the energy sector in the last year. After having made several major working interest purchases in West Texas, North Dakota, and other places, the company has experienced a 72% increase in stock value year over year. Northern Oil and Gas began making non-op investments in the Williston Basin and has since branched out to other regions, and congratulations for them. I love to see companies who don't just wait for the grass to grow around their feet. 72% increase year over year. Yeah, you have some help coming out of 2020, but still, that is something significant. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, we finished our last article of the 8th Basin. If you know, we only go through eight of the more major basins of the United States, so... Unfortunately, that is the end of this episode. But if you need more content, like Kevin mentioned, I always put out Monday... Well, I shouldn't say always. We've been away a little bit, but I'm getting back into putting out Monday Madness regularly, and the wacky world of energy should resume in 2023. If you're less of the listening and watching type and more of the reading type, please go to www.rarepetro.com where you can find plenty of other articles being written by Rare Petro's finest Nick Turns. That's Nick Bryan and Nick Fernhout who put together most of the, re well, all of the research for this podcast. So thank you to them and the rest of the team. But Kevin, I think that's all I got. Anything else from you? Uh, nothing for me. Just, you know, hoping everyone has a happy and safe holiday season. Uh, well, this has been the Basin Breakdown episode for November 2022, recorded here in December. Merry Christmas. If you subscribe to this podcast, you will see December's episode out sometime in January. So thanks for joining us. And until we see you next time, take care, everybody. 